Welcome to Digging In with Missouri Farm Bureau. I'm Spencer Tuma, Director of National Legislative Programs. Today, we're continuing our series of podcasts with interviews of members from the Missouri Congressional Delegation, and we're very fortunate to be joined by Congressman Billy Wong from Missouri's 7th Congressional District. Congressman, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Spencer. Thanks for having me. Well, we're really honored to have you as a guest. I think this is your first time on the Digging In podcast, or maybe your second time. I'm not sure. You might have been on a couple of years ago. But, Congressman, as you know, we have listeners from all over the state of Missouri who tune into our weekly podcast and, and even folks from other states as well. I know that the folks who are listening in from your district know you very well, know a lot about your background, but... But for those who might not be from southwest Missouri, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and and how you came to be in the U.S. Congress? All righty, sure. Yeah, I'm a Springfield boy. My family's been here for several generations, and family was in the furniture business. In fact, if you've ever been to the Flame Steakhouse in Springfield (laughs) out on Walnut Street, Mm -hmm. that was my granddad's used furniture store. Really? Yeah, I was a little kid. I'd run around in there, and if you've noticed, They've got a U-shaped balcony, and it's real low ceiling up top. People have to kind of duck when they go up there to be seated. But my grandfather was so tight, he wanted more room to display furniture. And so (laughs) he had Bill and Bob Killian, which is Bill Killian's dad and uncle, uh, build that balcony in there so they could display more furniture in their furniture store. And as as it would happen, uh, the Frisco Railroad, of course, went through Springfield, and Springfield was where they chose to have their dead freight auction. And they would uh, ship in anything that was damaged on the Frisco Railroad coast to coast. It might be a chemistry set for a kid. It might be a, a chest of drawers out of a house. It might be a can of pork and beans. Anything that had been damaged on the Frisco Railroad would come in for a monthly auction. They called it the dead freight auction, the dead freight auction. And so... I went there two years old riding on my dad's shoulders, and uh, I can still visualize, still remember that auction from being up there and all the excitement and everything that was going on. And so fast forward uh, till I was 24 years old, and I was a real estate broker, mm-hmm. and Jimmy Carter was president, and interest rates were 16, 17, 18% on a home oh loan. Business loans were 22 to 25%. Uh, Ed Penninger, a good, good friend of mine that recently passed away, Penninger Chevrolet, he told me when he had to take out a loan right after he first started for 22% interest, and he had no idea how he'd pay it back, but he uh, didn't know what else to do, so he did, and he fought his way through it. Well, I was a 24-year-old real estate broker, and I thought, well, I'm going to starve to death. You know, you can't sell a house at 16, 17, 18% interest, so I better learn how to auction these off, and after that start at the dead freight auction, my folks and I would on weekends, we just for something to do, we'd go to some of the country auctions around. Mm-hmm. Uh, my mom liked to buy old pieces of furniture, pie safe or anything, and strip them down and fix them up just for us, not for resale or anything. And so we went to a lot of auctions over the year, and I knew a little bit about the auction business. So I went up to the Missouri Auction School. They called it the Harvard of Auctioneering. Wow. Kansas City, Missouri, on top of the livestock change building this was would have been november of 1979 but uh back then the stockyards are still going strong there and in the bottoms there in kansas city and we'd go over there and watch the cattle auctions and uh then we'd go to nightly auctions all around the kansas city area and sell items kind of you know learn the business 
but it was so cool being in the livestock exchange. And the golden ox, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not small of stature, and uh, I don't back away from the dinner table very easy. So the golden ox was a fabulous steakhouse on the bottom floor of that building, the livestock exchange building. So it was quite a quite a place for a country boy from uh, Springfield to go up to uh, Kansas City and uh, be thrown in the middle of a big, big city, which I'd never been to. It was a little nerve-wracking, but... Uh, Sure. Made it through that okay and came home and started. I volunteered for an auctioneer here in Springfield to help him with his auctions and uh, did that for about a year while I was still selling real estate. And finally, I talked the first person in to let me auction that first house off, and then I had a really, really good 30 year career out of it. And uh, mm-hmm. I want, wanted to run for Congress back in the 90s whenever mm-hmm. Mel Hancock uh, gave it up. He served four terms and decided that he wanted to go home, and so. I thought about running for Congress at that point because I always thought that you needed people off the street, not people that started out at city council and then mayor and then state rep, state senator, and 20 years later you look up on the local Congress and retire and they say, hey, you'd be great for it. You've been on city council, been a mayor, been state rep, state senator, but they've never done anything, never signed the front of a check, never run a business, never hired people, never fired people. And so I always just had it in my craw that, you know, that's what I would do want to do would be, you know, go up there and represent just normal people like me that raised cattle growing up, and uh, so I thought that that was something I should do back in the 90s, and I thought about it for about 15 minutes because our girls were 7 years old and 10 years old at the time, uh-huh. and I thought, I don't want to be a long-distance dad, I don't want to, you know, want to be home on the weekends, and I don't want to move them out to Washington, D.C. and have them, you know, grow up out there, and so I didn't even, I never gave it any real consideration and Roy Blunt uh, ran and won handily in that race and served 14 years and then whenever Kit Bond said that he was going to give up the Senate and Roy got off of a plane in Springfield, KY3 our TV station here shoved a microphone in his face and said what do you think about Kit Bond's seat and I knew what he'd say, you know, I knew he'd say well it's Kit Bond's time, there's time to think about that later and everything that's not what he said he said (laughs) I am seriously considering it and I was sitting in my recliner in my living room and I stood up raised my right hand I said I'm in because I knew Roy would go ahead and run so I a few days later the newspaper called and they said well we've heard a rumor we've heard you're thinking about Congress running for Congress excuse me running for Congress is that right and I said no that's not right and they said oh you're not thinking about running for Congress I said no I'm running I'm not thinking about it yeah. And uh, on February the 2nd of 2009, Super Bowl Sunday, we uh, the news leader came out with an article, If Blunt Leaves, Who Follows? And it had me and about six other people named in there who might run. <clears throat> and uh, one of my friends here in town saw that, and he said, Are you serious? Are you going to run? I said, Yeah. And he said, I'll help you every step of the way. And he did, and uh, that was Gordon Kenny, And uh, he's one of the committee men of the Republican Party now, but has a real successful insurance company here in Springfield, MedPay, and so that kind of got me off and run. Then John Mahaffey, a long-time big Republican supporter, mm-hmm. and Fred and his wife uh, got in behind me early, which kind of sent shockwaves through people because they're like, what's this auctioneer real estate broker? And I also did six years on the radio, talk radio on AM560 KWCO, and it was three hours every morning, Monday through Friday from 99 to 06. Now, I didn't run till 09. And the election was in 2010, but I had been off the air a couple of three years when I ran. But still, 
I tried to get different political guys to handle my campaign, and nobody wanted to handle it because they knew I'd lose. But one of them did a poll, and he called me one day, and he said, uh, you're going to be the next congressman from southwest Missouri. Now, this is after he didn't want to take my campaign. Of course, yeah. And I, I said, I am. And he said, yeah. So we polled your name. You outpolled everybody. And mm-hmm. I was running against, you know, a couple of state senators and running against the prosecuting attorney from the biggest, you know, county in the district. And so I wasn't the guy that was supposed to win, but I started early and stayed with it. And one of the things that I did do, and I've said this a million times, I think in my 10 counties, I think there's eight Farm Bureau annual meetings. And I went to seven of the eight. And because I know that's where the voters are. And out of an eight-way race, one of my competitors I saw at one Farm Bureau event. So I was wow. pr- pretty good about it because I thought these other guys don't even know to put a campaign in here. I'm the rookie. You know? Right, right. Well, our members have really appreciated that relationship that you built with them over the years. I, I, I hear nothing but good things as I travel around your district. Um, and, and we're certainly glad to have you in Congress. You mentioned you were a radio host. I actually feel like you should be hosting the podcast. Because you have a lot more I'm not letting you talk much. I'll say that. Oh, no, no, you're fine. I, no, this is about you. So we want you to continue to tell us the stories. I did want to ask, so, you know, clearly you have a history as an auctioneer and a long career. Um, everybody, I think, has seen the video of you auctioning the cell phone of the protester during the committee hearing in Congress um, that certainly certainly went viral on social media in my circles. But, Congressman, I know that you do a lot of charity work now that you're in Congress through auctioneering as well. Do you mind to talk a little bit about some of that? Sure, sure. Yeah, we, uh, yeah, that video was, I've been in Congress eight years and never had a protester in any of our committee hearings. And people would say, had you thought about that for a long time? Did you know what you were going to say? I'm uh-huh. like, yeah, you know, I sat around for eight years thinking, now if somebody gets up in one of my committee hearings one day and makes a fool of themselves, how am I going to handle that? I said, no, I didn't think about right. it. Right. That was, that was strictly off the cuff. I, uh lady jumps up. She was filming herself with a selfie stick and screaming on the back row. And I'd watch the Kavanaugh hearings for three or four days. And I'm not a senator, of course. I was not involved in the Kavanaugh hearings, but... They, uh, people would, you know, they they were numbered. They like protester one, protester twelve, protester seven, and they, you know, text them. All right, seven go. Well, number seven would jump up, and start raising old Billy Kane and screaming. The police step uh-huh. come in and drag him out. And so whenever she got up, I looked at Bill Johnson next to him, and if you play the video, you can hear me on there. I, I say I can't hear her. I turn on my microphone and looked at Bill, and I thought, well, you know, we both got microphones. If she doesn't, we just talk over. I, right. said, I can't hear her. Well, he just instead of saying, well, I can't hear her either, Billy. And then I said, well, I wonder what, you know, we could have just talked over. But he just looked at me like a deer in the headlights. So you'll hear me on the video come back and I say, I don't understand what she's saying. Like, <laughs> Bill, come on, say something, Bill. And Bill just looked right. at me. So I just started talking about seven and a half, three dollar down here, now two and a half, now they're running seven and a half, dollar two and a half. Sell the cell phone there, forty dollar two and a half. <laughs> the whole room was mesmerized. They... I guess people in Washington, D.C. never go to auctions. I mean, around here, you go to three a week. <laughs> right. But Jack Dorsey of uh, Twitter that started Twitter, he was the only witness that day. And he just looks at me and just stares. The whole crowd staring. You could have heard a pin drop. I mean, nothing. You couldn't hear a word she was saying, the protester. And so she finally starts kind of just 
escorting herself out. And I put the police open the door and she walks out. And uh, that's who I'm a hero with is the Capitol Hill police. They still to this day, that's been a couple of years ago, but still to this day, they'll come say, you know, the best thing ever happened in my 37 years here, Mr. Long, is when you sold that protest phone that day. So I had fun doing that. And we do, uh, when you get elected to Congress, they always say they want normal people in Congress. But if you have a fiduciary business, like Blaine Lutkemeyer had a bank and an insurance company, so he can no longer own those. Once he goes to Congress, I had an option in real estate county. It's a fiduciary business. We're handling other people's money. And so, and you can't even sell blue sky. I mean, after 30 years, after building up a good reputation and that phone number, 882-LONG, 882-L-O-N-G. Don't call the wrong number. Call the long number. I mean, that was on radio ads forever. Everybody had to memorize. But still, all I could sell was my computers, my auction topper, my pickup truck, and my trailer, my cashier's trailer. That's it. You can sell equipment and nothing else, huh. which is really, you know, kind of frosty because it's like you want normal people here. You complain about lifetime politicians, and when somebody that's never held office and comes in and has run a business for 30 years, you say, all right, you got to sell it. And, oh, by the way, you can't get anything out of it because you can't mm-hmm. sell any blue sky. So, but, uh, yeah, no, I do a few benefit auctions. I had the president sign my St. Jude. I'm real passionate about St. Jude. When I was an auctioneer, I was on the auctioneers, board of directors, the national board of directors, and we had probably been, I don't know, 35 or so years ago, or maybe more than that, but uh, we uh, picked one national charity to support, and we picked St. Jude in Memphis, Tennessee, and uh-huh. we go down there and visit when I was on the board and stuff, and visit with the kids, and visit with the doctors, and then as fate would have it, our uh, 31-year-old, when she was 25, she came down to Hodgkin foam and we just knew we were going to lose or we were just scared to death oh and gosh. petrified and uh but she turned out uh really really well out of it she came through her chemo in august of this year just last month was her uh five-year anniversary and they say that's really a high watermark if you hit five years chances of it recurring or very very minimal that's so wonderful. uh so anyway <laughs> i always wear my saying i always sit on the aisle in the state of the union you always see me on the aisle i get there at about eight in the morning and sit there until eight o'clock at night but it's worth it because of your constituency and people love seeing you there and you come home and oh so you at the state sure. union but i always have something for the president to sign when he comes by i mean if he's a republican now obama i sat on the island spoke to him and shook his hand and you know we talked about the flooding in uh missouri one year and we talked about the tornado in joplin one year and and they said well why do you shake obama's hand you know i think shaking a democrat's hand you're going to go straight to hell and uh, I'm like, you know, it's, you know, he's the president of the United States. We've got constituents in our area that need help for the president. I'm going to talk to the president, whatever party he's in. And uh, so anyway, I always speak to the president on the way out. I always have Trump sign a book or something. Well, I had a hat under my seat to make America great again, a hat, and I was going to have him sign that. But he had introduced a little girl, I think 10 years old, cancer survivor from St. Jude up in the balcony, up in the uh-huh. gallery, sitting next to his wife. I had no clue that, you know, there going to be somebody there from St. Jude. I'm sitting there in my St. Jude tie, and I love it because, you know, how many, if you want people to dislike you, just run for office. You'll have a bunch of haters immediately. And uh, so people see that tie. Like, What's that goofy tie Long has on? What's that goofy tie? And my staff was, you know, email them back. Well, that's the St. Jude Children's Research Center tie. Oh, okay. 
you know, right. I, I was wearing some goofy makes them kids. be a little bit quiet, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Fix, yeah, and so makes them quiet some down. So anyway, when Trump came by, I left the hat in the seat. I pulled my tie up. I said, "You tie." I said, "Mr. President, will you sign this?" Sure, Billy. So we signed the tie. We auctioned it off for St. Jude and brought fifteen thousand dollars. So wow, that, that was a, a great deal. And I had him sign another one this year after the speech, but uh, the COVID has shut us. Shut us down on auction because we're going to do it at the National Auctioneers Convention. It's going to be in San Diego this year, but they had to postpone that, of course. Mm-hmm. But uh, there's a Library of Congress has a uh, preschool, and uh, I always do their auction every year. They're little preschool, little scholars, it's called. So I do an occasion auction now and then, just you know, benefit auction things that, of course, can't charge for them or anything. But uh, that's kind of how the auctioneering ties in. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you mentioned the pandemic, and, and we would be remiss if we did not on this podcast discuss the pandemic at least a little bit. So from your perspective, how has the pandemic impacted lawmaking for members of Congress? Tremendously. It's uh, The whole world is upside down, and Washington, D.C. is upside down, and we I've been to D.C. way, way, way less this year than any year that I've been in Congress. Normally, my normal schedule is I fly out on a Monday, come back on a Thursday, or fly out on Tuesday, and come back on Friday. Mm-hmm. And uh, this year, we've been home, you know, a lot more than we've been in D.C. And when we go out, we just go for a day or two. Okay. And all of our committee hearings are now done remotely by Zoom. And uh, so it's really, really shaking things up. The Democrats passed the rule, not a law, but they made a new rule where they could vote from home on, by proxy voting. Mm-hmm. For a few weeks ago, the Speaker called us back for an emergency thing to bail out the post office and how they were selling it. All they mm-hmm. wanted to do was get the mail carriers mad at it, saying, oh, they don't support the post office. Well, the, they had said in June, the post office said, we have $13 billion cash on hand. We had given them $10 billion in borrowing power in one of the COVID bills that we put through. So they got twenty three access to $23 billion. They're not spending a nickel of it because they don't need it. And they mm-hmm. said we're, you know, we're financially stable until August of 2021. And so Pelosi, you know, calls us back. So oh, we got to have an emergency Saturday session to vote on the post office. She knew we'd vote against it, but now, you know, it was just a campaign tool so they could go home. Sure. But 68 of their members didn't bother to come to town, so they... I had to go in a day early because there's so few flights now. That's another thing. You know, the airlines aren't running there as many flights as they were because there's no passengers. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so anyway, I had to go in a day early and cool my heels, you know, in my apartment for a day and wait for the boats the next day and then turn around and come home the day after that. And of course, uh, I think every Republican are pretty much all probably voted against it. Now the Democrats can run around and tell the postal workers, oh, the, you know, the Republicans hate you. That's stuff. Man, it's certainly an interesting time, I would say, to be to be living and working in politics, you know, and we, and you and I have talked about this before, and I know you've talked about this with Mr. Hirsch, that, you know, during the pandemic, we certainly saw a lot of volatility in our act markets, but particularly in the livestock sector and the dairy sector as well. Yeah. Um, I know the livestock industry is incredibly important to your district. I guess, kind of, what's your view of, of everything going on in the livestock industry now, and do you see anything on the horizon that, that might help provide some relief or address some of the issues we've seen? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm not a big fan of the Ag Secretary, and we have uh, Jason Smith, Congressman Smith, and 
Congressman Mullen, Mark Wayne Mullen, Congressman Hartzler, we all went down to the Joplin Regional Stockyards. This has been months ago to talk to them about these packing houses and how you know it's such a limited market. I think there's five companies and three are from overseas or something, and you know figure there's no some way to break up that monopoly where the farmer gets more of the you know for his hard work than the packing houses do. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we've been looking at different things legislative. Of course, we talked to Secretary Purdue about that, but it pretty much falls on deaf ears. And then, unfortunately, Trump's a big fan of Purdue. So uh, Jason and I and Mark Wayne Mullen and Ricky were all just pulling our hair out on the on the thing. But uh, we just keep plugging. And, of course, on the dairy part of it, it was really, really bad for Missouri dairymen because a lot of them are, you know, grazed. And mm-hmm. it's the way that they had the compensation figure, they were going to pay for your first three months of the year, you know, which is your worst three months by far. And, you know, if you're a grazer in Missouri, and uh, we try to get that changed, talk to Purdue about that, and they, oh, yeah, yeah, we'll get that done, we'll get that done. Well, guess what? They did not get it done. So it's pretty, pretty frustrating. I tell everybody that when I went to D.C., I had a full head of thick black hair. Now look at me, you know. <laughs> Well, it's, there's certainly complex issues, and, and I, I will agree with your sentiment that I think our Farm Bureau members, we're still trying to figure out, you know, what what's the best way to address these problems. Another topic that we've really seen highlighted, particularly over the pandemic, but, but as you know, rural broadband has been an issue even prior to the pandemic, sending people home from work and sending kids home from school. I know you're an advocate for rural broadband. How are things looking for rural broadband down in southwest Missouri? And I nationwide. Yeah, it's, uh, this merger with uh, T-Mobile and Sprint, uh, I think, will really bear fruit for Missouri broadband. And you're right, it's probably my top uh, issue that I work on in D.C. And, uh, you know, there's different bills, cable leadership acts that I sponsored a broadband data act there were these broadband the mapping was terrible in the united states you couldn't tell you know they might say well you've got access to broadband here you don't there and it was the maps were just i mean a kindergarten kid could have drawn a map and showed you where there was you know broadband and where there wasn't and he would have been as accurate as what uh, we had in our mapping and mm-hmm. so we've really been working on a lot of bills on offices real good to you know get with uh, rural folks and talk about rural broadband and see how we can get it out there because I don't think a child should be penalized because of their geography you know if they right. uh, where they live a kid in the country ought to be able to you know get the same access that a kid in the city can and shouldn't have to drive 20 miles to sit in a McDonald's or a Starbucks or somewhere to get access to do his homework with and uh, rural health care you know has really been brought into the spotlight with this COVID-19 thing and uh, you know, a lot of the rural areas are hours away from big hospitals and things, so it's hard and it's not safe for elderly citizens to drive that far. And so we had made some headway in the uh, oh, tele, telehealth before this energy and commerce had passed, you know, some bills on mm-hmm. that. So that, that was a good thing, too. But uh, with COVID and people afraid to go to the doctor and everything, it's really, really beneficial to be able to, you know, and again, you got to have rural broadband to get the, you know, for them to be able to communicate back and forth with their doctor where they can see them. Yeah, absolutely. Telehealth is something we've heard a lot about from our members. You know, a lot of people have never used telehealth before, and I think Congress in there is probably quite a bit of interest in that technology. 
as long as people have the adequate broadband to access it. So that's something we're really excited about, especially in the rural areas, if, if we can make it work. Yeah, um, especially, you know, as you know, mental health is a huge, huge issue, and it's yeah. been compounded by uh, everybody being locked in their house with each other and, uh, you know, doom and gloom. The world was going to come to an end. Everybody in the United States is going to be killed with COVID. I mean, I think almost everyone was killed. You know, Joe Biden one day said there's 300 million Americans that died from COVID. So, you know. <laughs> I guess we need to fact check that one for yeah, sure. Get the, you know, I mean, the Democrats are get the pass, of course. But I've come out with a new slogan for the Democrats. You know, Trump has made famous uh, MAGA, Make America Great Again. Well, I've got Make Basements Great Again. Make Basements Great Again. MCGA for provide make basements great again yeah <laughs> oh god well congressman one event that i know i missed out on this year and and we normally see you there as well the missouri state fair had to be moved to a little bit different format um certainly know that that was not an easy decision for the governor and the department of ag to make but i know that you have actually authored some legislation about liability protection for agricultural events would you mind to talk a little bit about that bill yeah, that's something that we have uh, worked on in Congress and, uh, you know, offered that bill. And I think it's really, really important to get that get that through. Yeah, this, this thing is shutting down the fairs and everything. I just, of course, no one knows. I mean, when you're shooting at a moving target and you don't know if the targets come around behind you, you're going to, you know, sneak it up and bite you in the rear end once you think you've got everything under control. And I think that that was probably the governors and the ag folks thinking of, you know, postponing or canceling that you really can't you know postpone a fair and i do a lot of work with the the fair folks and the carnival people and things trying to get things on a level playing field with them but it's really uh, not good uh, that those had to be canceled but you cancel and you lose it for a year and i really think that i you know i think it's going to be mid 2021 some of it might depend on who wins the presidency in november but i think either way it's going to be mid 2021 before things start to get back to normal in Washington. Um, Missouri has done a pretty good job of getting things reopened and people getting back at it. And you're not going to lock people back in their house. I mean, Joe Biden says, you know, if he has to, he'll shut down the country. And, uh, you know, the American public is not going to stand for that. And uh, we, you know, we were locked in long enough. Now we're just learning to live with it. And you hear all those reports about, you know, so many cases here and so many cases in that school and so many cases in that university. And then you get to looking at the data and then you get to reading the paper and, and new medical stories that are coming out saying, hey, a lot of these people were, you know, asymptomatic. Sure. Didn't, even, yeah. didn't even know they had it. They had it months ago. They were never, uh, you know, contagious. And, you know, we've, and, you know, we're getting reports now that they are testing positive and they've been over it for six months and never were contagious so there's a lot of you know like they say figures lying liars figure and i think on this covid thing you're seeing a lot of that going around people trying to scare people to death and mm-hmm. of course the democrats want to make the president look as bad as they can say oh he handled it wrong while well, he shut down air travel from china early on and took all kinds of criticism nancy close right. standing in chinatown saying everybody needs to get out everybody needs to shop come to chinatown there's nothing wrong with this you know, flu that China started, but uh, apparently there was a little bit wrong with it. Right. 
Congressman, we certainly appreciate your time today. Before we sign off, I know um, we cover a lot of heavy topics in this podcast. There's, there's a lot going on in the world that it just doesn't seem very positive at the moment. And so we try to always end our podcast with, with a little bit of a fun question so our members can get to know you a little better and get to know us a little better. Uh, we had been calling this, when, we, when everything was locked down, we had called this the quarantine question. It sounded real catchy and fun. Um, but now that we're not locked down anymore, we can't really call it the quarantine question. So I'm calling it the Missouri Farm Bureau question of the week. This week's question is, what is your favorite flavor of barbecue sauce? Well, I was hoping that you would ask, what's the biggest bass I caught in the last 24 hours? Do you want to, you can and answer I was, that I was going to tell you, I was going to tell you, I caught a 13-pound, 4-ounce smallmouth yesterday on Table Rock. So oh I was hoping, hoping that was the question. But, uh, <laughs> I mean, I'm an Arthur Bryant guy. I like, uh, I know a lot of people, that's not their favorite, but that's my favorite. Well, listen, I'm glad you picked the Kansas City barbecue spot. I I will say Arthur Bryant's is not my first favorite, but, but Gates Barbecue has to be my number one. And I think they've got a couple of locations that are real close to each other. So um, so I, I can appreciate your respect for Kansas City barbecue. I, I certainly can. Yeah. The worst thing about Arthur Bryant's, you walk in and they've got Obama's picture on the wall when he went <laughs> visited there. So other than that, it's a really good place. Yeah, they do have a lot of good barbecue there. Congressman, any final thoughts or final final things you want to say before we sign off for the day? Not really. Just appreciate everybody's, you know, patience through all this COVID stuff and it's uh, emotions run high with people and you know, the good people in this country are gonna have to rise up and put down this violence and this rioting and I mean, you know, the peaceful protesters shot another peaceful protester in the chest, you know, one was a Trump supporter, one was Antifa. And then they ended up shooting him and killing him last night. And he made it, he made it, he did an interview right before they shot and killed him and, you know, told about, oh, he was self-defense. He was worried for his life. Him and his friend were going to get killed by this poor guy that didn't even have a gun on him, you know. So, and that was another thing that that the White House did today. My wife and I went and the president made his speech at the end of the Republican convention and I was sitting right next to Rand Paul where there was an aisle between us, you know, like a foot and a half people I turned sideways so I was literally sitting right next to Rand uh, luckily he went out one gate and Barbara and I and the other folks went out another gate so we had some protesters and had to walk six or eight blocks and trying to figure out where we were going because nobody knew where we were, nobody knew how to get anywhere, all the roads were blocked off but then right. of course Rand and his wife are, you know, in fear of their life because they're getting threatened and screamed at and that place for the patience and hang in there and hopefully we'll get everything back on track and we'll see you at the fair. All right. That sounds great. Congressman, we appreciate your time. If you ever need anything from Farm Bureau, don't hesitate to get in touch with us. Appreciate you being on today. All right. You bet. Thank you. Thanks. Bye-bye.